welcome back to Ocean Science Sanctuary. My name is Alison Nunez and today we're gonna have an amazing service. Now, what I love about Sundays is that I get to have a little one-on-one with God, read a little bit more about the gospel and get to see amazing content. If you wanna stay tuned with us, please make sure to like, subscribe and share with your friends. And I hope you guys have an amazing rest of your service. It was nice to see you. Now, this church, always begins its worship service with the Lord's Prayer. Perhaps the most, prayer, most important prayer there is. So please pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The presence of the Good morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. It is good to be here with you on this Sunday morning as we gather online for worship. Today we're gonna to continue our series called Encountering God, where we are visiting different passages in scripture that depict different people in scripture encountering God or making contact with God in some way. And what we're really doing is asking, how is it that the good news 
is revealed in those encounters that these characters from Scripture have, and what can we learn about ourselves and the way that we can be on the lookout for how to encounter God as well. I hope this has been good for you and helpful for you in some way. Today we're going to continue with a passage from Exodus chapter 32, but before we jump into it, as usual, I want to ask that you would just join with me wherever you are, wherever you're sitting. Close your eyes, give yourself a quiet moment. Let's ask God to be with us as we read through this passage today. God, we thank you so much for today and for this opportunity for us to gather wherever we might be in our homes uh, or in our cars or at the park or at the beach, at a friend's house, on our back deck or our front porch, wherever we might be tuning in, we ask that you would give us a sense that we are gathering together and connecting with you in some way that you would impress upon our hearts a sense that we are in your presence no matter where we happen to be, that it doesn't have to be here in a church building with pews and stained glass, that you are present everywhere in our lives and that you are always drawing us into contact with you in some way. Give us the ability by reading these passages to recognize those moments when we have divine encounters with you so that we can partner with you in whatever you're calling us to do. We pray all that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to take a, another look at one of these encounters that uh, sometimes I think gives folks a little bit of trouble when they read this passage because it tends to depict God in a way that runs contrary to some of the usual beliefs we have. So we have looked at different characters from Scripture, from Abraham to Isaac uh, to Hagar to Shifra and Pua, uh, all different kinds of characters that we find in these Old Testament passages. Today we're going to visit a really familiar character. This is a story about Moses, and it's told in Exodus chapter 32. And again, one of my favorite passages because I have a rabbi friend who likes to make an important point about this passage, and I'll get to that a little bit later. But first, I want us to read through it together. So I want to ask that you follow along with me. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Exodus chapter 32. If you don't, as usual, we're going to go ahead and put the words up on the screen so you can follow along. Now, Exodus chapter 32 is when uh, Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai. He has already led the uh, Israelites out of Egypt. God has helped to deliver them from slavery. Moses went through that entire saga where you know, he was raised in Egypt as a prince of Egypt. And then he's cast out because of a crime that he commits. He actually murders an Egyptian guard who is mistreating an Israelite slave. And uh, of course, even though he's a prince of Egypt, he gets cast out of Egypt. And of course, Moses has this secret heritage, this secret hist history that he's actually a Jewish uh, baby who was adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. And so we have all of that drama. Moses is cast out into the desert. He joins with the Midianites there. He finds himself a wife and he settles into this life uh, of a shepherd in the desert, and he seems perfectly content to have this life. And then he has his first really dramatic encounter with God. And of course, that's the famous story 
of the burning bush, where Moses comes upon this bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed for some reason. As he approaches it, he hears this audible voice of God who announces God's self as the one true God who wants to deliver his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. And that, of course, opens up this really dramatic and really powerful narrative in the Old Testament whereby God is delivering the Israelites from slavery and bondage. And of course, that involves uh, all kinds of pleading and all kinds of planning. And then, of course, God sends plagues so that the Pharaoh will finally let his people go. And after all of that, Moses leads these people out into the wilderness. And here they are in the wilderness on their way to something better, on their way to the promised land that God has promised to them. And so Moses is called up by God onto Mount Sinai while the rest of the Israelites are left in Moses' brother's charge. Uh, his brother's name is Aaron. Aaron's in charge of the Israelites. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai. God calls him up there so that he can give him the Ten Commandments. But in the meantime, something really frustrating happens. As Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, we learn earlier in chapter 32 that Aaron and the Israelites, while they are waiting down at the base of the mountain for Moses, they get frustrated, they get impatient, and they decide to cast an idol out of gold, an idol of a calf, and they begin to worship it. Because they're afraid, and Moses has gone, and they don't think he's going to come back. And so they turn back, essentially, to the old gods of Egypt and begin to worship this golden calf. Now, that's where we're going to pick it up in the story here in verse 7. Uh, what we have is Moses coming up on Mount Sinai and God speaking to Moses because of what's happening at the bottom of the mountain. So read it with me, starting in verse 7. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. In other words, you just got up here, but guess what? You need to turn around and go back. Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They've been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt." And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked, in other words, how stubborn they are. Now let me alone, God says to Moses, let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and of you I will make a great nation. Now I want to keep reading, but first I just want to pause there at the end of verse 10 and just recap what God is saying. God has, has greeted Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, and he is furious because the people that he helped lead out of Egypt, that he delivered from bondage, have cast aside the worship of God and have instead cast an idol of a calf out of gold and are, are now worshiping that idol. One of the interesting things about this passage is right there at the end in verse 10, God says, Leave me alone so that I can be angry, so that my wrath might burn against these people, and then you and I will make a great nation. Essentially, what God is saying to Moses here is, 
I am done with those people. I'm done with the people that you brought out of Egypt. And now because I'm so angry, I'm going to destroy them. Let's just you and I go and we'll make a whole new group of people so that I can fulfill my promises. But God's basically saying, you know what? I don't want anything to do with them anymore. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to destroy them as a people. And you and I go and we'll create a whole new people from another group somewhere else. Now, this is, this is a very different passage than the other encounters with God that we've read so far. Now, for a couple reasons. The first reason is because this seems like a, a much more intimate encounter than we have read in our previous passages. In the passages where we read about Abram's encounter with God or about Hagar's encounter with God even, there isn't this passion, there isn't this high emotion being depicted in God. In those previous encounters, God almost seems like a dispassionate observer who is helping out uh, or who is helping uh, somebody to cast a vision or is rescuing somebody. And of course, in the story of Shifra and Pua, uh, God is, is really a background character. He's sort of alluded to or, or assumed to be there. But in this passage, there is a deeply personal connection that God has with these people who have rejected God, and especially a deeply personal and intimate connection that God has with Moses. So personal, so intimate that God is depicted as being full of anger because of what's going on. The second thing that's different about this passage is not just its intimacy, but also that it has taken a sharply negative turn. In all of the passages we've read so far, the encounter with God has been positive for the person who's encountering God. But in this one, Moses is standing before the creator of the universe and facing that God's wrath. That's the first time we've seen this kind of threatening posture. I just wanna point that out before we continue to move forward. And I wanna share a few things about this passage that I noticed. Verse 11 says this. Moses' response to God starts here. It says, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out here to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the heaven and all this land that I've promised I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Essentially what Moses is doing is standing here on the top of a mountain facing the wrath of the creator of the universe. Moses argues with God. God makes Moses an offer. And the offer is let's do away with these people who are useless and have already rejected me. And let's create a whole new people together, just you and me. And Moses' response to that is to say, no, Lord. And then he brings three arguments to God. He says, why would you destroy these people after you have spent so much time and effort and energy to deliver them from evil? That's argument number one. You've already invested so much in these people. 
And then argument number two is, do you really want the people of Egypt to say, well, this is what God always had in mind. He brought those slaves out of Egypt so that he could slaughter them in the desert. That wouldn't look very good, God, now, would it? Or the third argument, which many people argue is the most powerful argument that Moses makes, and that is simply, but God, you made a promise. You promised to Abraham and Isaac and Israel. You promised that you would multiply their ancestors and that you would deliver them into the promised land, that you'd make them into a great nation, that their descendants would be more numerous than the stars. This is your promise, God. Are you really going to go back on it? Moses, standing there facing the wrath of God, has the wherewithal, he has the courage to make these arguments to God. And verse 14 says, And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he had planned to bring on his people. Now I want to stop our reading there and just offer up a couple of ways that we can read and understand this passage. Because this passage can be extraordinarily troubling. Mm -hmm. Now, the first problem, of course, with this passage is that it depicts God as this angry, vengeful, violent God. And as Christians, as followers of Christ, as people who believe that Jesus is the perfect representation of God, it's hard for us to imagine a truly loving God having this kind of anger towards the people that God supposedly loves. So the first problem with this passage is it just depicts a God that, that frankly, many of you and, and I would agree don't really have any interest in worshiping. A God who can get so angry and turn his wrath on his own people and slaughter them is probably not a very moral God to begin with. And so for many people, this is a, a deeply troubling and frustrating passage. For others, this is a, a troubling passage because it just boldly, starkly depicts God as changing God's mind. And that really contradicts all of the traditional notions that we have about a God who is impassable. That, that is, a God who doesn't uh, go about being affected by God's own feelings, and a God that is uh, omniscient, that is a God who knows and sees all things. So if God is omniscient, then how is it that God somehow wouldn't have known that he was going to continue with this group of people? What's the purpose of a God who is depicted in this way? That kind of God would never change God's own mind. That kind of God wouldn't have to change God's own mind because that God would know all and see all and therefore really be impassable, that is, unaffected by the disobedience of the people that he has aligned himself with. So for those two reasons, this is really a, a deeply troubling passage of Scripture. And theologians uh, from the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition have debated this, of course, for a couple of centuries. What I want to do today, excuse me, a couple of millennia they have debated about this passage. Uh, what I want to do today is give you three possible ways that we can read and understand this passage. And I'm not going to tell you which one is the right one because that's really not how theology works. But I am going to give you three ways that people tend to view this passage. And I think each of those three ways can be helpful to us. The first way is that in this passage, 
God hasn't really changed God's mind, and God isn't really even angry. What's happening here is that God is essentially testing Moses. That God knows that he is going to work with these people. God knows that they're a disobedient people. But God also knows that because he has enormous patience and because he is committed to fulfilling his covenant with his people, what God's really doing is testing Moses's response when he offers to slaughter these people and start over, start fresh with a whole new group of people. And that's a pretty traditional interpretation of this passage, by the way. Not all theologians in history would have said that, but a lot of people in history in both Jewish theology and Christian theology would say, well, what's happening here is God didn't really change God's mind, but God simply appears to be changing his mind because he's testing Moses's character. He's testing Moses's response. And of course, in this case, Moses passes the test. God is looking for Moses to stand up, to rise up and advocate for his own people. God wants Moses to have that response. And so Moses passes the test. Moses is now uh, qualified to be their leader. God knows that he can trust Moses to lead these people to the promised land. The second way that this passage can be interpreted is a much less traditional way, but still a valid way. And many theologians today would take this posture. And that way of reading this passage is this. Now, what's happening in this passage is not that God is angry with these people and that God wants to destroy these people. What's happening is that Moses is wrestling with his own anger and his own frustrations. That when Moses has an encounter with God, he brings his own anger with this rebellious group of people. And what Moses is doing essentially is projecting his own desires, his own emotions, his own anger on God. And what we see happening then, according to this perspective, is that in this passage, we see Moses's understanding of who God is evolving through the course of his prayer. That this is essentially Moses coming to God in prayer and hearing God speak to him in his own voice. I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this teaching that uh, that Moses was a prince of Egypt. And many of you, I'm sure years and years ago, uh, saw the animated movie Prince of Egypt that depicts the life of Moses. It's one of my, my favorite pictures of all time. I love animated films, especially when my kids were little. We would watch those films all the time. And one of the things that was really uh, a beautiful and profound aspect of the production of that animated film Prince of Egypt is that the same actor who provided the voice for the character Moses also provided the voice for the character of God. So when you watch that film, A Prince of Egypt, when you hear God speaking to Moses, God speaks to Moses in Moses's own voice. And that was an intentional choice on the part of those who were involved in that production. And it's intentional because it reflects something very true. What's true is that when we encounter God, when we hear from God, when we pray and we believe that we receive a word back from God, in a very real sense, we hear God in our own voice. And for that very reason, our encounters with God are always susceptible, 
always in danger of being projected upon by our own desires, our own thoughts, and our own beliefs. And so it's possible that what we read here is Moses projecting his own anger into God's voice. That it was never really God who was threatening to kill the Israelites at the base of the mountain. That it was Moses wrestling with his own desire to finally be free of this difficult group of people. It was Moses' own desire to say to God, why don't we just start this thing all over again? But as Moses wrestles with his prayer, as Moses wrestles with God, a revelation comes about that depicts who God really is. And that revelation comes about as Moses' inner voice advocates for what God would really want. And what God would really want in this case is to fulfill God's promises to God's own chosen people. Now, that's a perspective that some of you might find liberating and exciting, or it's a perspective that some of you might find really frustrating and really disturbing. But it is a perspective that says something true about the Bible and something true about our relationship to it. And that is that throughout Scripture, we see a revealing, an unveiling of who God really is all the way up until we get to the person of Christ. And so perhaps this passage is one small version of that evolving understanding of who God really is. That's the second way that you can legitimately read this passage. The third way to read this passage is, in some ways, I think, the scariest way to read the passage, and that is simply to take it at face value, to say that God is very angry with the Israelites for disobeying him, that God is very angry with the Israelites for casting a golden calf, that God is betrayed by this very group of people that God gave God's self to entirely. And that Moses, because of his intimate relationship with God, engages in an authentic conversation with God and wins God over with his prayer. Now, I know that that might be a really disturbing idea for some of you, but here's what that perspective has going for it. This idea that God was genuinely angry, that God was genuinely betrayed, that God was genuinely hurt by the rejection of God's own people reveals the kind of God that isn't impassable. It reveals the kind of God who enters into relationship with humanity because that God loves humanity so much that that God is willing to risk being hurt in that relationship, that that God is willing to risk suffering on behalf of humankind, that that God wants to be so close to us, so engaged with us, that that God could be hurt in the relationship, just like we are often hurt in relationships with each other when we aren't faithful to each other. Now, I said that that might be one of the hardest perspectives to hear, Because it really reveals a God who is vulnerable, a God who enters into a relationship with us that could be in many ways fragile. And we don't usually think of God in that way as someone who can be hurt by humankind. But of course, when we look forward into Christian scripture, we see that Jesus reveals that very thing, that God is willing to enter into humanity, that 
God is willing to submit God's self through the incarnation to genuine hurt and pain and suffering because he ultimately is rejected by humankind. The good news in that perspective, I think, is that we have a God who wants to be close to us, who's willing to engage in that kind of relationship. That's really the third way that you could read this passage. Those aren't the only three ways that you could read this passage. Those are just three that I wanted to point out to you because one of the things I want us all to understand is that we can approach Scripture from a variety of different ways, from a variety of different perspectives, and get really important lessons out of those different perspectives. But there's one thing that we haven't talked about that I think is the most important point of this passage, and that is simply this. We tend to be distracted by the question, was God really angry or did God really change God's mind? When I think the real point of this passage is not what happens with God, I think the real point is what is revealed about Moses. Here's what I mean by that. I have a, a rabbi friend here in San Diego who loves to talk about this passage. And when she talks about it, what she says is that Moses is the greatest prophet in all the history of Israel, in all the history of Judaism. And the reason that Moses is the greatest prophet in the history of Judaism is not because he was so smart, it's not because he was so wise, it's not because he was so righteous or virtuous. No, on the contrary, the reason Moses is the greatest prophet in all of Judaism is because he was willing to say no to God. He was willing to stand before the creator of the universe. And when that creator of the universe said, let's do away with these people and go and make a new people together, you and I, that Moses, that man, that frail human being stood there on Mount Sinai and said, no, no, because you have made a promise to these people. And what that reveals about Moses I think is at least two things. And the first is that Moses's character had become really deep. That Moses, probably through Moses's struggle with these people, through Moses's encounters with God, Moses went from being the man at the burning bush who said, no, I don't want to do this, to now being the man standing on Mount Sinai who was willing to say no to God. And thereby we see that Moses's character has grown and deepened and become so substantive that he has become compassionate for these people. What we see is that Moses has become or is becoming the very person that God intended him to be. And that really is the point of this story. It doesn't matter which way you read it. Whether you think God was really angry or whether you think that God was testing Moses or whether you think that Moses is projecting his own anger and frustration onto the sort of you know, canvas of God, whatever it is that you see in this passage, they all have the same thing in common, and that is that Moses was a person of enough compassion and enough depth of character that he was willing to advocate for these people and say, no, I will stand and plead their case. And that is what happens when we encounter God in all of the different ways that we've talked about in this series. We become genuinely deeper, more compassionate, 
more courageous people who are able to do what is right in any given situation. Today, I want to end with that and just ask you this question as you are watching. I want to ask you to answer the question, how is it that your encounters with God have shaped your character for good? Because ultimately, that is the fruit of any genuine encounter with God. Any true encounter with God, whether it seems spectacular or mundane, whether it seems miraculous or whether it seems invisible, whatever it might be, when we have a genuine encounter with God, it deeply changes our character for the better. We become people of compassion. We become people of courage. We become people of character. So my question again for you today is, how have your encounters with God deepened your character for good? Would you just pop into the comments on Facebook or YouTube, wherever you might be, and just type in how it is that your encounters with God have changed you for the better? What has changed in you as a result of that? And as you do, I just want to ask that you would encourage each other, that you'd respond to each other's comments so that we can have more of a sense that we are fellowshipping together even as we worship online like this. I want to leave you with that and ask that you would pray with me as we go and ask God to bless us this week. Would you just join me? God, we thank you again for today and for this passage from Exodus chapter 32. We thank you for the opportunity for all of us to gather together even at a distance from each other. And we ask God that you would encounter us sincerely and genuinely in ways that touch our hearts and shape and mold us to be the people that you have ultimately created us to be. I ask God that this week, as we go about our lives, as we attend school or go to work, uh, whatever it is that we are doing, that we would be attentive to how you are coming into contact with us in a variety of ways and how you're drawing us closer to you and making us more like you each day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being with us this morning. It's time to take communion. And I feel very fortunate because my dad, Gary Quick, is here with me today. Um, we haven't seen each other, I want to say, in about five months. Five to six. Which we decided was too long. So we made sure that we were healthy and feeling okay and uh, he decided to come down and, and see us. And Jason and I thought it would be really nice to uh, take communion together because it's a blessing nowadays to be able to do this kind of thing together since so many times we feel like we're doing it separately. So if you have some communion elements and we say if you don't have bread and grape juice, you can find something comparable this is a time to reflect on the Lord and um, his great love for us. So let's begin in 1 Corinthians. Okay, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take that together. 
it's functional. Take your time. <laughs> All right, and reading on. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. And then I've asked my dad to pray for us today. Father God, what a blessing to be here, be united with family, and also just partake of the elements to remember what you did on the cross for us and that you will be coming back for us. We just thank you for the beautiful day that you've given us and the time together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey everyone, it's Alex. We really appreciate you joining us today and we've got a few couple quick announcements before we head off. The first is, is if you're new, we'd love to get to know you. So all you have to do is go to OceansideSanctuary.org slash contact and let us know about yourself. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to connect with you, especially in these times. Also, if you're new or even if you've been here for a while and you're just curious about what we're doing, we have a Q&A session with our lead pastor, Jason, where you can come and ask any questions you want. And that's happening pretty much right after this today at 11.30 a.m. on Zoom. You can go to the website and request the link there. Next up is our book club, again, starting up on September 10th at 6.30. And this time we're gonna be reading the book the Sin of Certainty by Peter Enns. It's a great book. You can RSVP on the church website at oceansidesanctuary.org slash calendar. Next, we are moving our service from 10.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. So this is a pretty big change. We're moving the service to 9 a.m. every Sunday right here on Facebook and YouTube. Of course, if you want to tune in at 10.30 a.m. again, you're still welcome to do that. The video will be there. But if you'd like to watch it live, we are now going to have service at 9 a.m. And lastly, we are a 501c3, and we rely on the donations and the gifts from people just like you. So if you like what we're doing and you'd like to support our mission, you can go to oceansidesanctuary.org give and make a gift today. Thanks so much, everyone. We will see you next week right here on YouTube and Facebook. Peace.